I've always struggled with the idea that office is a core asset class. Frankly, it's always, even pre-COVID, exhibited more volatility than asset classes, than a lot of the niche asset classes, which won't even be considered for core treatment. Core means high free cash flow conversion, you know, using manufactured housing as an example. It's one of the most stable income streams that we've come across. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Real Estate Capital. I'm your host, Nancy Lachine of Park Madison Partners. Park Madison is a capital solutions and advisory firm serving the global institutional real estate business. We sit at the intersection of real estate managers and their capital partners. And in bringing these two groups together, we speak to a broad range of thought leaders about recent trends in real estate investing, capital markets, operations, and technology. On this show, we try to bring some of those insights and conversations directly to you. My guest on this episode is Adam Gallistel, head of the Americas for GIC Real Estate and a member of GIC's Global Investment Committee. GIC is the sovereign wealth fund for the government of Singapore, one of the largest and most active real estate investors in the world. GIC's total portfolio is worth over 400 billion with assets in 40 countries, including its real estate portfolio of over 30 billion. My conversation with Adam occurred in October 2020, just days before the U.S. presidential election. And while investors' concerns have changed since then, with new things to worry about like inflation and high interest rates, my conversation with Adam still provides timely insights about how one of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds navigates market cycles. We jump right in with Adam's story of how he found his way into the world of real estate and his path to GIC before we make a deeper dive into GIC's investment thesis and the intricacies of the assets and investments Adam covers. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Adam as much as we enjoyed having it. I've been fortunate to call Adam a friend for over 15 years, and I find him as smart and funny and entertaining today as the first time we met over lunch. Take us back to the beginning. Tell us where you started your real estate career. Candidly, I kind of fell backwards into real estate. I had been an undergrad at Penn. I was studying intellectual history, which is a pretentious way of saying sort of the history of philosophy and the history of ideas. For a while, I thought I wanted to become a professor of history, which is odd at Penn, you know, with the Wharton overlay. Probably somewhere around my senior year, I realized that there were five good jobs in the country for what it was I was working on. And (laughs) I wasn't even in the top five of the people at Penn studying my particular chosen muse. So I realized I wasn't the path that I thought I was on was not the path I was on, but really had no idea what I was going to do afterwards. So I graduated college without a resume, without a job, and proceeded to go off to Turkey to sail the Turkish coast for a little while. Then I ran out of money. And so I moved home with my parents and I lived there for about five days. And I was like, I need to get a job. Um, (laughs) My parents were great. They had no pressure on me. They were happy to have me there, but I was not happy to be there. So this was the late 90s and the mid to late 90s. And the job market was pretty good. And liberal arts degrees weren't in demand in financial services, you know, much as they aren't today. But liberal arts degrees, consulting firms would hire you. And so... The first callback I got was from a group called the Concord Group uh, based out of Newport Beach, California. Went down and had an interview. They gave me a job offer and, you know, pursuant to the earlier statement that I just needed to get a job, I took the offer that was given to me. And so began my (laughs) career in real estate. And, uh, you know, the Concord Group was great. I learned a lot and actually turned out that I, I liked real estate. 
But, you know, candidly, I didn't like where I was on the food chain in that, you know, at the time, Concord Group did a lot of third-party market validation, product positioning studies for land developers and home builders. Mm -hmm. And I realized that we were largely only being hired after somebody had decided what they wanted to do. And we were there to, you know, sort of dress up an investment committee memo and say things like, don't trust me, trust the experts at the Concord Group for our, you know, our independent opinion that we had been paid to give. So as much as I liked the people there, I just wanted to move off the food chain and also... You know, as a nerdy Jewish guy riding the desk, you know, Newport Beach is a lovely, lovely place, but it's not great for a, a nerdy Jewish guy riding the desk. You know, my life, my roommate was a lifeguard and it was great for him, but, you know, I figured I should go where the other nerdy Jewish guys go. So I went to New York and I, uh, <laughs> Sorry. So then... Yeah, you uh, digress. I digress. (laughs) I digress. So anyway, I was lucky enough shortly after moving here to get a job with one of our former clients, which was LaSalle Investment Management, which at the time had a land development investment group. You know, in the early days, we were doing... We were investing what at the time seemed like an unfathomable amount of money to me. You know, we were doing $10 million equity checks, $15 million equity checks, sometimes $20 million equity checks into land development sort of and you know some of the people we were doing it with were people like Sun Cal and this was pre Lehman giving them money and and it was fun and interesting and at some point during all of that I got a call from one of the higher ups at LaSalle and they said, Hey, guess what? We're uh merging with JLW and we're going public and land development is absolutely not anything we want to talk about in the context of our public offering. So we're going to be closing this group down. And so you have two choices. You can either work yourself out of a job or you can... The firm had been hired to essentially work out of the diplomat in Hollywood, Florida when it was owned by the plumbers and pipefitters. And so not really knowing much other than working myself out of a job didn't seem like a good idea. I chose door B. Spent a few years doing that, getting it open, went back to business school, spent a summer at Goldman doing banking, really liked Goldman, liked the culture thought I was going to go back. Then I had an offer in the essentially their debt securitization group. And you know I just wasn't that interested in the debt securitization group. I graciously turned down the offer and then had a fairly terrifying second year of business school where at first I started out arrogant, I would say, because I was like, oh, I got an offer from Goldman. I turned it down. You know, this is going to be easy. Everybody's going to want to hire me. And I don't know, after about my 40th rejection, it was certainly humbling. And uh, as I got towards the end of the year, I had a couple options on the table. And one of them was GIC, which frankly was largely unknown to me. This is sort of 2003, I guess, pre the, even the coining of the term sovereign wealth fund. And I remember sitting with a woman at the time named Heidi Kosh. And I said, how much money do you guys have to invest? She said, I can't tell you that. And I said, how much money did you invest last year? can't tell you that either. And I said, okay. She said, you know, trust me, it's a lot. She seemed very trustworthy. And so I went to work for GIC and then have been here ever since. I thought it was going to be a few year stint. Really, you know, I think I've stayed because, you know, GIC is a fascinating place. It's both the fountainhead of capital, you know, really it is one of the true sources of capital. And it's also largest repository of market information. And so sort of mm-hmm. being able to have the power of the fountainhead and the information that frankly resides, you know, sort of inside of investment banks, but they can't act on is a very potent combination for someone who's curious about the world and looking to express views through investments. 
And so, you know, along the way, we've had the team grow from, I think when I hired, there were seven or eight people in the Americas. And, you know, now we've got 40 some odd people. And I've had the pleasure and honor of watching the portfolio and the organization grow into what is really a remarkable institution. That's my story. Wow, Adam. <laughs> I feel like we should just stop there. That's a, it's such a great story. I mean, if anyone ever thinks it's a straight line to the gold ring, you know, just have to listen to that because, yeah, there were a lot of twists and turns. And I love the way you've described your current job as being curious about the world and looking to express views through investments because that really is, you know, that dates back to your intellectual history days, I'm sure. It's just kind of having a much broader view than where do I find, quote, the best risk-adjusted return. But to back me into kind of, um, in terms of relative returns, how does GIC allocate capital around the world? Do you have one benchmark or how do you think about it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we price capital around the world basically on a spread to risk-free rate basis. So we start, you know, in any given country, local currency, bonds, we take that, we add a risk premium for being in real estate. And then we have a system that allows us to sort of evaluate everything up and down the risk spectrum that scores out essentially the idiosyncratic risks of a deal. And so that would be anything from composition of returns, percentage of returns coming from income versus capital gain, you know, the security of the income, you know, how volatile it is to how much leverage is in the system, to some more subjective factors such as quality of the counterparties involved, quality of the location, et cetera, and so on. And so for every deal we look at anywhere in the world, we use that system to score out. And each of the categories I suggested, of which ultimately there are 16, has associated risk premium with it. And so you start with risk-free rate, you start with general cost of being in real estate, and then you add all these idiosyncratic risk premium. And that system is just a tool. It's not perfect, frankly. In a world with zero interest rates, it probably tends to possibly understate risk returns mm-hmm. in developed markets. Mm-hmm. But what it's important about it is it provides a unifying and organizing framework for the firm to think about whether we're being paid for the risks we're taking in any country, in any deal. And so it allows us to rationally approach both a, say, a development of residential in Mumbai in the same day we talk about a triple net Amazon lease for 25 years <laughs> located you know, in the best part of the Inland Empire. Right. And so each has its own cost of capital and we can agree or disagree with the suggested cost of capital, but it's sort of it provides an organizational principle to make decisions rationally. Yeah. And do you commit in local currency and then is there any hedging going on or you just assume you're going to be long term in all these markets and the currency risk is in that framework that you've outlined? So unlike virtually any other investor in the world, you know, the place we don't invest is Singapore. So we have no natural hedged currency. We do have a benchmark currency, which is a mix of global currencies, which allows us essentially to be, you know, naturally hedged since we have a diversified funding mix of currencies for most countries. We do do some hedging on the margin if we are in off benchmark currencies. So I guess the short answer is it depends. It's <laughs> a good one. So before we kind of move on to what's going on here in the U.S. and where there's so much to talk about, but I'd love to hear your views about what's going on in Brazil today. You've spent you know a good decade plus following things there, and it's been a very deep cycle. 
there was an interesting interview you did recently where you had an, you developed an index for Brazilian investment. And so I'm just curious kind of what the house view is on investing in that market today. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, we didn't do it. We just partnered with MSCI who actually developed the index. The thinking behind developing it is just, if you look at the generally available indexes for private real estate, they don't reflect the investable universe, which is what an index should do, right? If you think about it in public market terms. And rather, they reflect, by and large, the historical artifacts of how those indexes came about. So, you know, either being based in Europe or the U.S. and the industries that grew up around them. So we just thought it was time, given that there is increasing institutional interest in Brazil, to work with MSCI to start essentially measuring how we're doing relative to the other participants in the market on the principle that, you know, you make what you measure. Sorry, what was your other question? I, I was I, just I, so are you allocating into Brazil today? Are you, I mean, we... Oh, yeah, so we, what's we my view on Brazil? Part, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll just, but my sort of premise on that is obviously we had been so active in Brazil for quite a while from 2009 through to about three years ago, but it's just been really hard for most North American investors to take a long-term view there. The currency is so volatile and, you know, with everything that went on with car wash and all, it just felt like um, the excess return that people felt they had to make for taking the country risk has made it a place where there's been a lot less international capital going into real estate there, which could be a great opportunity for you guys, but maybe not. So I'm just curious what your view is. You know, we continue to be constructive on Brazil. As you point out, you know, it's been a rough decade for Brazil. And if you roll back pre-COVID, a lot of people, including ourselves, believe Brazil was about to be on a roll and that it had made constitutional reforms that made the state more financially solvent long term. It had two years of anemic but positive growth out of the deepest recession they'd ever had. And there were a lot of good tailwinds going on in Brazil. And then COVID hit and, you know... That went away. Uh, <laughs> so I would say from a macro perspective, Brazil is and remains challenging. That doesn't mean there aren't good investment opportunities in Brazil. In fact, you know, one of the interesting things is that we've actually managed to... Oh, some of the assets that we purchased during, say, the last five years, we've actually managed to monetize despite the poor operating environment. And that's just because, you know, Brazil has had the same drop in interest rates in relative terms, actually a larger drop in interest rates as the rest of the Mm -hmm. world post-COVID. And so that's led to a desire for yield. So even notwithstanding the objectively challenging macro fundamentals in Brazil, we've actually been able to harvest some quite interesting gains on the back of cap rates Mm -hmm. being a second derivative of interest rates and people paying record low cap rates for assets in Brazil, even though uh, operations aren't fantastic. So you can still make money there. You know, our thinking in Brazil overall is that it is a bit of a trading market. You know, the windows for liquidity open and shut quite rapidly. And there is a decent amount of volatility, but there are opportunities to make money there for the not faint of heart, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you make such a great point and it's, I mean, it's a big macro point, but Obviously, as rates have declined, I mean, in Brazil, they've declined, you know, hundreds and hundreds of basis points, you know, and here maybe 150 basis points. But investors who have been debt investors are, you know, looking more and more to equity for any kind of yield. And that doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. I mean, the Fed's clearly previewed that here. So 
that kind of flood to equity and what that will ultimately do to values and the ability to find liquidity through real estate, I think is definitely fueling some of what we're seeing in terms of the expected opportunity that real estate investors are seeing right now, where real estate's transacting in any kind of volume today. So obviously industrial, residential in the rural areas and blue states primarily, triple net lease, medical office, life sciences. That pricing is all pre-COVID pricing, and there's a fair number of bids for any of those deals. But the biggest part of the capital markets office is just stuck at the moment because you know there's no transparency in trades, there's no transparency in leasing, and there's this question of where the demand's going to be. So that's what we've been seeing broadly in the markets. You obviously operate in all four quadrants, which I think is an interesting aspect of this. But tell us what you've been doing in the last seven months in terms of new activity. Sure. Last seven months. So, you know, frankly, the last seven months seems like a decade. So both in terms of just effort produced and also not all seven months are equal in terms of how we've approached things. So I'd say initially going in, you know, the sort of late days of March, early April, there was a ton of price action. You know, there's a lot of forced selling in the debt markets, which we were one of the few, I mean, there were several players, but we made meaningful investments for a period of about two weeks in the debt markets, uh, largely buying in capital structures that we already knew and had underwritten and largely buying senior to positions we already had. Sort of cognizant of the fact that we, since we already own the junior, you know, to a certain extent, we own the risk. And so if we were comfortable with that piece, we should be comfortable up the stack at higher returns. And two, we didn't, given the speed at which things were happening, we thought it was best to focus on what we know knew. And also, we were concerned that if we bought into a bunch of different capital structures, you know, essentially, you're buying into a series of potentially cascading liabilities if you intend to defend all of them. And so, while our balance sheet is big, we didn't necessarily want to be all over the place is how we think about things. So we bought a decent amount of debt for about two weeks, then Talf came along, that all stopped. Candidly, we've actually sold out some of that debt subsequently. Uh, We did similar things in the public equity markets and actually round-tripped a a decent number of stocks there as well. On the private markets, you know, there was nothing trading in the early days. And so we didn't do anything there. As you fast forward to the rest of the time, we've continued to buy slowly some debt securities that we think are mispriced, but it's been slow going. We've continued to play in the public equity markets to a lesser degree and frankly see better value in the public equity markets than we do in the private markets where the bid-ask spread you know, remains large by certainly in the COVID-affected names. I'd say our approach on the private markets going forward is putting together, I'm sure a lot of these people have heard people from Post talk recently at the Wharton conference, you know, Kleeman and people from Blackstone talk at various conferences recently. And, you know, Blackstone pursues a more thematic approach to the world. And Post is very, you know, idiosyncratic opportunities, opportunistic approach to the world. I would say we do both just because of the scale of our balance sheet. We need to have as wide an aperture as possible. I would say right now, in terms of scale deployment and investment, it's really in the sectors you mentioned are the only places we continue to be able to invest in size. And, you know, frankly, with some trepidation, but we continue to invest in a lot of the tailwind sectors, life sciences, industrial, debatable as to whether or not storage is tailwind, but we've done some stuff in storage recently as well. Manufactured housing. There's been data centers. All of those areas have actually continued to do quite well. And 
you know, we continue to feed them, although at ever-increasing valuations. At the same time, we've also tried to run into the COVID fire. We've done a couple of preferred securities, which are a way to sort of bridge the bid-ask spread between equity and debt in the lodging space. We've been buying pieces of paper that, you know, it's debatable as to whether or not we get paid off, but we think the basis is good in both in some of the gateway cities and sort of traditional asset classes. As you said, office right now, pricing equity is, we're finding challenging. Overall, look, I put myself somewhere in the middle between the, you know, the office free CEOs who have no choice but to say it's nothing's going to change, it's going to be great all over again. And maybe the analysts who cover them who say that the world is falling apart. I mean, look, I think it's going to be a rough decade for gateway office owners. You know, simply... Like I fundamentally believe like the cities aren't dead, they come back. The trends of urbanization have not been reversed, they've just been paused. That said, you know, if you say post economic downturn, which is, you know, gonna be horrific, as are all economic downturns for office leasing, that stabilized demand is say ninety-five percent, ninety percent of where it was before because of work from home, et cetera, and so on. You know, on the margin, I think it has to affect it a little bit. That actual 5% of incremental demand is very important to office landlords because, you know, pricing power in the office market is all about marginal demand, especially in markets like New York and San Francisco, where there's been a ton of new supply added. You know, taking 5% out of your stabilized demand numbers actually more often than not has you being below, say, 90% occupancy in a given market. And, you know, in a market like New York City that has, I don't know, 450 million square feet, if you've got more than 10% vacancy, tenants have a lot of choices. It's a bit like Vegas where, you know, in the hotel market, Vegas runs in the 80s and 90s, and yet they haven't been able to push rate for a decade because, you know, 10% vacancy in Vegas is still more hotel rooms than most cities have, right? So I think it's going to be really difficult for landlords to gain pricing power for quite a long time. And then you couple with that with some of the lasting legacies of WeWork, which are Increased work letters, more flexible office space, more flexible office lease terms, sorry, not space. You've got this dual hit of increased capital investment, either trying to stay current or cool or sexy, coupled with shorter lease tenure, coupled with a lack of pricing power. And ultimately, that's, you know, if you run that through your underwriting in present value terms, even putting aside the economic downturn, it's hard to see office coming back to the valuations that it was pre-COVID for quite a while. You're making those 40, 50% declines in NAD in REIT values look like they're making more sense than some of the private marks at the moment. Yeah, I'm sure you're, that's, it's an unpopular view to voice that, but I certainly hear what you're saying. I was just talking with someone else who was saying, although office is the biggest part of the real estate capital markets and it's always been considered the core asset, at the moment, it doesn't feel core. And it reminded me of when, you know, I, I spent 10 years working for a manager whose focus was regional malls. And that was the other thing that was really big in core. And the CapEx, you know, was always understated for regional malls. And, you know, you've just made the case for why it's going to be understated for the foreseeable future for office as well. So that's a lot of real estate to digest. And it's a lot of mark to market that hasn't been done in the private sector yet, if, if that all comes to pass. Yeah. You know, I've always struggled with the idea that office is a core asset class. I mean, frankly, office is a better business in other parts of the world than it is in the U.S. And frankly, office is a better business, at least just structurally on the West Coast of the U.S. than it is on the East Coast, right? Because on the East Coast, you're signing leases that step up, I don't know, every five to seven years, usually the steps that don't meet inflation. 
you're playing sort of Russian roulette as to when they roll a lot of below the line capital intensity. So if you're buying things at four caps, you know, your economic cap rate is one, two percent when you factor in all the TIs and LCs you're using to buy those leases. So I've actually never quite understood why office has been considered core, so to speak. Frankly, it's always, even pre-COVID, exhibited more volatility than asset classes, than a lot of the niche asset classes, which won't even be considered for core treatment, be they, you know, when people use the word core, to me, it's a bit like a Rorschach test, like it's whatever people want it to say, right? But I mean, to me, core means high free cash flow conversion, high recurring income, good financing spreads, and you know, frankly, Office hasn't offered any of those things for quite a long time. Whereas, you know, using manufactured housing as an example, it's one of the most stable income streams that we've come across, you know, similarly. And, you know, I think the public markets actually appreciate this much better than private instances. You know, roughly half of the public markets index is stuff that isn't in the traditional four or five food groups of real estate, right? And frankly, that half has been the better performing half by, you know, for at least the last two decades. So, yeah, it is. It's interesting. And there's definitely a case study in there. When I started in real estate, which is about a decade before you, residential multifamily was not considered an institutional investment. So, yeah. you know, the idea was that institutions wouldn't want to own, have to be responsible for someone's kitchen flooding or whatever. And obviously, you know, multifamily until industrial has been the most successful investment over the last decade for institutions. So it'll be interesting to see how these, quote, specialty categories work their way into uh, institutional portfolios. They're just not as big right now. So that's a challenge. What are you thinking about urban residential? How are you viewing that space? Because obviously there's been so much new construction and right now you're seeing rents fall in a lot of markets, but there may well be some buying opportunities going forward. Uh, you're talking about high-rise multifamily in cities? Yeah. I mean, look, it's going to be a rough... Frankly, I'm probably more constructive on the long-term prospects for multifamily in that, like I said, I think cities come back. I think this idea that we're moving back to the 60s and 70s as to the suburban-type lifestyle that was touted, I just don't buy it. Maybe I'm blind to it because I live in the city myself, but I just look around the world, this sort of suburban exit option that has existed for COVID. Frankly, the U.S. is somewhat unique in that respect, right? If you looked at Asia, a suburban, say, for example, China is just, you know, the densest urban environment you can imagine 10 miles away. It's still a city, true urban environment. And people have all come back there. And I just think, you know, really the choice in Asia or in most of Asia is rural or urban. And I think given that choice, the urban wins every time. Even in Europe, you know, the suburbs, frankly, are from a livability perspective, are a much less compelling value proposition for most than because you have to go way out in order to get any access to the urban environment. You know, I think ultimately it comes back there and has come back faster. And then coming back to the U.S., I don't see any reason why the U.S. will behave differently long-term in that fashion. So as a result, urban multifamily, we see, a, you know, I think patience and courage would be my words for that, is that like office, we will see opportunities. I just think some more pain needs to run through the system before the legacy's owner's anchoring of expectations has had time to adjust or because their lenders force them to adjust. So mm-hmm. I think to your point, there will be interesting opportunities there. Yeah. Well, maybe it's also because I'm a nerdy Jewish kid who grew up in New York City. I certainly agree with you about the 
cities will eventually, you know, recover. And, you know, long term, that's where the value will retain itself. I definitely want to hear your thoughts about lessons learned. When you think back to, you know, 2008-9 and that painful decline and, you know, unwinding some of the things that you had to unwind there, what are you thinking about in terms of lessons learned and how are you taking that experience and having it inform your decision in what will be a post-COVID environment? Part of it is, how am I taking those lessons? Good question. I mean, I do come back to the earlier statement about patience and courage. You know, I think the good news for us relative to the last financial crisis is that we went into this crisis a lot better prepared. As a firm, you know, we had basically been had called the top several years too early. And so we had been making investments that at the time we thought as being very much more defensive than offensive, sort of looking for steady income streams. Now, of course, some of the things that we thought were defensive are, you know, anathema to COVID, right? (laughs) Like betting on a, you know, urban multifamily, for example. Things I tell my staff all the time is, look, this too shall pass. Don't waste a good crisis. I mean, they're all cliches, so I don't know if I have anything. (laughs) (laughs) Frankly, the cliches exist for a reason, and it's important to repeat them, especially to the young staff who, in many cases, didn't go through a prior crisis, saying, hey, look, don't get scared. Markets tend to overshoot in both directions. And so when markets do overshoot or when buyers find they need liquidity, that's when our competitive advantages come to the fore, right? Especially on the last, you know, the ability to provide large capital solutions in a short amount of time becomes very highly valued in moments like this. And I think recognizing that and making sure we keep the foot on the gas and not try to time the absolute bottom or some of the lessons that we learned take from the last ones. We have the benefit of, I guess, looking smart in that regard because we're so underinvested. Frankly, we have a, a need to invest through the cycle at all times. So, you know, sometimes our need to invest can be perceived as being contrary and when it's really just us trying to execute the business plan we've had all along. But, you know, we'll take the credit when it's given, right? So... Always take the credit. That's a lesson, <laughs> maybe a cliche, but that's a lesson I learned early and often. I want to switch gears for a second and just ask, how are you factoring climate change into your investment process and has that changed at all? This has become actually a firm-wide client-driven initiative and ESG in general. I'd be lying if we started out years ago in much as Asia in general was, you know, were we at the forefront of any of this, like say the European institutional community was? No, the answer is no. But we're a fast follower. Look, Singapore is an island in the middle of an ocean, right? There is a certain existential threat to Singapore as a country from rising sea levels. And so that sort of existential threat is really reflected in a lot of how we think about investing now. And that, yes, we do in our underwriting look at environment, both the environmental impacts of what we're doing as well as the environmental, you know, the feasibility long-term of that structure, since it's not chattel, it's immovable, of being above ground 20, 30 years from now. We think in those kind of time horizons. You know, frankly, I think the client thinks in even longer time horizons. And it's just the client's desires to think in even longer-term horizons and just the realities of running a business probably cause us to shorten the timeframes to something that, you know, is more near-term. Right. Have you redlined any geographies because of rising sea levels? Not explicitly, so no. But there are investments we've passed on because we're concerned about that it might not be there in a few years. Okay. Well, I'm going to wrap up with a couple of personal questions. Have you had any important mentors in your career and what did you learn from them? Frankly, 
I think the biggest mentor in my career is, and this again may sound cheesy, it's outside of my career, is actually my grandmother who instilled in me early on in just the importance and primacy of exercising curiosity in everything you do. And I think that's a lesson that has stayed with me throughout my career. And I've had the pleasure of working with wonderful people who've guided me along the way, you know, including a man named Colin Murphy, who was at LaSalle Investment Management, and a woman named Emma Tyronson and her mother-in-law, Marta Borsani at the Concord Group, and as well as Dr. Seek here in, at GIC. But I didn't have sort of one father figure, if you will, who guided me throughout my career. Well, needless to say, I love the grandmother image. I think it might make many of us think about our own grandmothers. I had a grandmother who, my mother's father died while my grandmother was pregnant with her in the influenza epidemic of 1918, which is, of course, a timely reference. And my grandmother worked every day of her life to support these two kids who didn't have a father. And so certainly it's still a certain work ethic in our family. So appreciate that reference. I know you love music. Do you want to just share with us uh, maybe the best live concert you've ever attended? Uh, I think the best live concert I ever attended was when I was in high school. Perry Farrell had just broken up with Jane's Addiction and founded this band called Porno for Pyros. And me and my friends sneaked across the border to Tijuana and watched him give one of their first shows in a really seedy, disgusting bar packed with about 150 people. Perry Farrell was getting off and doing stage dives, and the energy was incredible. And it was one of the, uh, you know, in terms of live music experiences, it was probably the best one I've ever had the pleasure of experiencing. Adam, thanks. I have no idea how to top that. So we're going to end there. <laughs> thanks so much for your thoughts, for your candor and your insights. Really, really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Real Estate Capital. Before you go, I have a quick favor to ask. We put a lot of thought and effort into this show and making sure we bring you insights from real estate leaders that you don't normally find in the mainstream media. So if you're enjoying the show, please remember to follow it on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. We'd also love for you to share it with others or give us a review on Apple Podcasts so others can find us. Thanks again for tuning in. For more information about our firm, please visit our website at parkmadisonpartners.com.